0: You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. I am a fan of M&M's. Anybody here a fan of M&M's? Who would like some m ms I don't have enough for everybody, so I'm going to try to spread the love, okay? I'm going to throw them. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Here. I'm going to do two per section. Now I feel bad. All right, all right. Because I got second service. So, all right. <laughs> do you, do, the lower, uh, two per section, so that would be... All right. Josie, you're like one of the first hands up. Sorry, best seats are downstairs. <laughs> oh! Anybody else? Would you like some M&M's? Here you go. All right. You know I love M&M's. It's interesting, uh, it is probably the most, one of the most popular candies of all time, even though it's not like an, an old type of candy, it's it's relatively new as far as candy history goes, but it's one of the most popular, and what's interesting about M&M's is they're also one of the, mo- the smallest, and then in this little tiny M&M, you know, I like personally the peanut M&M's the best, they're like a meal, because it's got protein in it. <laughs> so yeah, skip lunch, eat peanut m and So in this little tiny, little chocolate covered chocolate, you know, there's power, you know. It's small, it's tiny. And I got to thinking today, as we go through the Beatitudes, we're going to do the M&M's today. We're going to do blessed are those that mourn, and blessed are the meek. And they go hand in hand. And though they're, they're, you might, they might seem smaller and significant as far as like some of the more well-known Beatitudes, these actually, these two go hand in hand and they're actually quite powerful and quite crucial in order for us to understand who God is and what God's called us to be. We've been talking about the Beatitudes. There was about a year and a half to two years into Jesus' ministry. He uh, took a walk up a hill on the northeast side of Galilee And overlooking the Sea of Galilee, he sat down and began to preach and teach to his disciples. Now, it might have looked a little bit like this picture here with his disciples as they overlooked the Sea of Galilee. The Bible says just verses before that there was a multitude following him. So usually when the Bible talks about a multitude, it's usually when it comes to Jesus, uh, several thousand people. So he walks up this hill and he sits down and and begins to teach. This becomes one of the most uh, famous teachings in the history of Jesus, Matthew five one says, "In seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, uh, his or when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and when he opened his mouth, he taught them." Now, these are what are known as the Beatitudes, and these are some of his best known sayings, but probably the least understood sayings of all of Jesus' life. Um, Most of us have heard some of these or heard the phrases, if I were to ask you what they mean, most people have no idea what they mean. Uh, There are eight character traits of the disciple of Jesus, of one who is a follower of God, and they describe the person who pursues and who lives out the heart of God. To pursue them is to do the opposite of everything that our flesh desires. Now, to understand this, here's a little review from last week, and this is important that each week before we dive into this, we understand the context in which he was sharing these. Um, To give you a little backdrop is in the first century, Judea, in the time of Jesus' life, the world was chaotic. They were under incredible persecution. Three out of four um, Roman citizens was a slave. There was little to no freedom whatsoever. They lived in an oppressed culture occupied by a tyrannical military government, Rome. And everywhere they went, there was military controlling them, oppressing them, mocking them, and forcing them to do things they did not want to do. Rome had an absolute rule. There was no democracy whatsoever. They were in a—if you were—when I say oppression, I want you to think of this image of someone sitting on top of another person, right? Because there's this idea that I'm sitting on top of you, you have little to no ability to get out from underneath me, and I'm just bullying you. This is the idea of oppression when it comes to the Roman government and the Jewish people in Israel. That they were being sat on, they were being oppressed, and there was little to nothing they could do to get out. Now there were four different groups that responded to this control in this culture. And they're going to come up in each one of the Beatitudes. Because each one of these uh, is basically makes up the four types of people in Israel during the time of Jesus' life. There was the zealots. This is a group of people that demanded power through violence. They were like the ancient uh, terrorists. They started riots and they burned down buildings and they, they, they wanted to overthrow the government through violence. And they demanded it. Uh, and they were very violent people. They were the Sadducees and they got power through politics. These were the Jewish people that compromised with Rome and, and took a lot of uh, political positions Um, And they were all about bargaining, and that's how they got their power through compromise. And then there were the Pharisees, and they kept power through religious control and manipulation of the people. And then the rest of of the people, the public, basically they sought power through hatred. Almost every single person in the culture of the Israelites was prejudiced. Uh, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans and the Romans. The Romans hated the Jewish people. The Samaritans hated the Jewish people. Uh, the Syrians hated uh, Israel and the Jewish people and the Samaritans in Rome. And they all, they didn't just not like each other, they hated each other. They had uh, stories of hatred and and they reviled each other and, and they persecuted and and belittled each other. So in the culture there was this sense of of racial hatred that was prominent in the early days of Jesus or in the life of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I read through this response. It sounds like our world today, filled with, you know, those who think that violence is the answer, those that uh, are more politically oriented and those that manipulate uh, people through religious control or through influential control. or uh, And then you have those that, that just respond with a lot of prejudice and hatred and, and single out groups because they feel like they're you know, not getting their fair share, and and so this is the culture they lived in, but it's really the culture we live in, and with that backdrop in the middle of all this, Jesus walks through the crowds, through the valleys of Judea, up a hill near the Sea of Galilee to share a kingdom perspective on this life of theirs and ours, and this is what he says. He said this, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we talked about last week. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Those are the M&Ms. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you, uh, when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. And he goes on to explain a little bit the persecution. Now, it's important that we understand these are not individual sayings. These are not individual commands and laws. These are responses of a disciple of God to pursue the heart of God. This is the heart of God. When you read the Beatitudes... It echoes Isaiah 61 and 62. We talked about this last week. That Jesus came to do these things and then he sits down with his disciples and says, this is to be your heart too. These are the eight traits of a disciple. The eight traits of those that pursue the heart of God. They're meant to be together. They're not meant to to just be separate. Now, because there's so many, we're going to take a look at a couple a week. But I want you to know that they're meant to be together and to be understood as a whole together. I want you to understand the backdrop in which he's saying these things in a culture that is opposite of everything that he's saying. He was challenging them to a new way of thinking and a life that was radically different than anything they'd ever heard. At the heart of this is the word blessed. That's where we get the word beatitude. Beatitude is the Latin word beatis, which means to bless. So Jesus is saying, these are the beatus, or these are the beatitudes. Um, And so they have something in common, all of them. Not only do they all begin with blessing, but they all are very painful. All of them are very uncomfortable to do. And all these things that are very opposite of what our flesh wants to do, God says, pursue these things, you'll know the true blessing of God. So how can something that is so unpleasant and so painful be a blessing? That's what we're Unpacking, and that's what we're focusing on. When Jesus said blessed, by the way, he wasn't talking about prosperity, provision, health, and happy days. He was talking about a blessing that that transcends, that go that goes deeper than our circumstances. Last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see heaven. It's the impoverished spirit. It's the spirit that is bankrupt, that is humbled, that is broke. A life of total dependency leads to an understanding of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Some say, Jesus, well, he's just a crutch for the weak. No, he's not a crutch. He's a stretcher because you can't walk without him. And when we understand our total depravity and need for Jesus, it under it leads us to a place of surrender to Jesus, which, lay, which leads us to the next two, the M&Ms today. This week, we're going to look at the mourning and the meek. So Matthew 5:4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This one's the follow-up to the broken spirit. They kind of go arm in arm a little bit. See, the poor in the spirit says it's an understanding that you are empty, that you are an empty life. I'm poor. I'm broke. I'm bankrupt. God, I have nothing to offer in this relationship with you and me. I am poor. I I have nothing. I am totally dependent on you. That is a recognition of empty, right? Mourning, the blessing is comfort, which is a Filling, You must be empty before you're filled. poor in spirit is this poverty spirit while this next one is a filling of the spirit with the comfort of God through the Holy Spirit. So here's the idea. We're saying, God, I'm broken. And maybe you've been there. You, 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 your brokenness has led you to a hope in Jesus. Maybe you've been to that place. We talked about this last week where, you know, that you were so broke. Uh, in the spirit, you were going through such a trial in your life. You are going through such a circumstance in your life that you finally looked up to the hope of Jesus Christ. But guess what? Your problem is still there. Your hurting is still there. You might have discovered the hope of salvation, but you're still mourning, and you're still hurting, and your heart is still aching. And that's where the next one comes in. Well, good news for those that are mourning because there's comfort and there's filling for you. What is mourning? Well, literally, it means to cry and to wail. And the word mourning here is used specifically in the ancients to refer to somebody that's died. You know, when you often will read it in the Bible, said they were mourning the loss of so-and-so, or they were mourning this when Jesus came upon. You know, when Jesus would resurrect the dead, there would be a group of people, and they were mourning, they were wailing and crying. Jesus is giving a powerful word picture here. Here's some of the mourning that we have in our life. Mourning over pain and suffering, this is the most obvious. Lost hope, lost health, pain, suffering, chronic pain. Some of you guys, you know, my mother suffered with chronic pain almost her whole life. She was a child of polio, and her whole life she suffered from post-polio Uh, Syndrome, So she was basically in pain 24-7 her whole life, and she rarely ever let us know. But I could hear her when I was a teenager in the middle of the night on our old house with our creaky floors. I could hear her pacing and walking the floors because uh, it caused all kinds of neurological issues. And, And so she was in constant pain, and she would walk the night house for hours. And I just thought, man... You know, she would pray and she would cry, and I could hear her just asking, asking God for healing. And maybe, uh, maybe you've been in a situation like that where there's been mourning or uh, chronic pain, suffering a loss of a loss of health. You know, where you're not able to do the things that you want to do. Uh, and then there's mourning over the loss of love. You know, this would be uh, the pain of a life that has been taken or that is lost, uh, a death of someone you love, a father, uh, a mother, a brother, a sister, uh, or maybe even a a breakup, a relationship, a divorce, or, um, you know, a, a love that you invested in that, that didn't turn out and you broke up. And this is, this is that morning of a lost love. And then you've got the morning of lost hope, and that is the death to a dream, uh, a planned, a planned future that didn't turn out the way, a, a failed business that, you know, breaks, man, I, honestly, it breaks my heart whenever I see a business close down because I know what it takes to to pour everything you have in your entire life into a business. You know, the people who open the doors of a business, it's usually a great cost to their own life and their family. They give their entire savings and they they take loans out and then they're 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 working 24/7 and investing in it only for it to close. And I just, man, I know a lot of pain. Every time I see clothes for business, a lot of pain and suffering is in that person's life, in that family's life. And a lot of times there's a lot of mourning, a lot of crying, a lot of confusion over this lost hope, uh, a lost home. Maybe you've uh, lost a house or had to file bankruptcy or, or maybe you, uh, you had an investment that fell through or, or you lost your car or got repossessed and, you know, or there's just that sense of just mourning over a lost hope or a lost dream or a lost plan. And then there's the mourning, and this is probably the, the, the deepest one, is, is regret and sin. And that's that regret over your sin. And looking back in life, you know, particularly uh, those of us that are uh, not as young as we used to be anymore, <laughs> we we look back and think, man, I, just that window of my life, if I could have just made these choices, if I could just had done something different. And sometimes we, we uh, come to this understanding in, in the first uh, beatitude of poor in spirit, we recognize our need for God. And then we get heavy and mournful over the loss of our life over the years of what we've miss when we were running from God and that sense of regret, a looking back of lost potential in your life. Many look for comfort and sorrow from these things in a variety of different ways. Some people, they look to, to recover from mourning and pain and suffering in these areas through alcohol and they medicate through through drinking and through drugs and they self-medicate through prescriptions or they self-medicate through a sexual lifestyle that they just go from relationship to relationship Uh, Or through technology, they unplug from reality and plug into technology. And they're just, they become like all about, you know, the newest tech fads and computers and, and or maybe they get really deep into social media or movies and they escape reality by diving into somebody else's reality. Uh, or for some, it's even shopping. Shopping is it releases endorphins every time you buy something. But once those endorphins are gone, you're faced with debt or you're faced with the lack of money or that feeling that's still there and you have to go back and buy some more. You see, the world offers help for our sorrows, but none of them produce fruit that lasts. But Jesus says, blessed are you who mourn. For you will be comforted, but none of those things comfort us. But to a follower of Jesus, morning is a blessing. And when we come to face to face to face with our sin and inadequacies, we find God's grace. And this is, the, this is a statement that I want you guys to really understand here. Jesus in the Beatitudes is talking to disciples. The, the crowd was following him, but this was when he sat down and he was telling his disciples, listen, this promise, this blessing of comfort for those that mourn is for Christ's followers only. It's for Christians only. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, great sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death mourning and sorrow without Jesus is just sad. It's just sad. There's not a sense of hope, a sense of a future, a sense of restoration. That's why the world will fill the sorrow in the morning with all these other things, but they can't ever find a filling for those things, so they will keep doing them and sometimes resulting in addictive behavior. That's why this, this emptying of the poor in spirit is so important to understand the mourning and the filling of the comfort of God because it's only something God can give to his disciples. Romans eight twenty eight says, and we know that all things work to good for those who love God or lo- those who love him. And we love that. That's on our tattoos. That's on our mugs. That's on our posters. You know, you know all things work to good for those uh, who love God or those, all things work to good. That's where we usually stop But actually, the rest of the verse has an important part that we need to understand. All things do not work for good for everybody. All things work for good for those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. That means who are part of His family. Those that are in relationship with God, love God, and who are called according to His purpose. That's salvation. All things work to good for those who are disciples. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are a true Christian, all things will work for good for you. But if you're not a Christian, sometimes things don't work out good for you. And sometimes the pain only leads to more pain. Sometimes a relationship just ends with sadness. And for those that that die without the hope of Jesus Christ in their life, it's just loss that you'll never see that person. There are relationships with God That's what this is about. For many sad events are just sad and nothing turns out good. And so here's Jesus saying, ah, but my disciples, blessed are those that mourn, for you will be comforted. And a lot of times we like to try to apply these beatitudes to every person in every scenario. But remember, this is a sit-down conversation with his disciples about what it means to have the heart of God and to walk with Him. Because the follower of Jesus knows that our weeping and our grief is only for a season. For a disciple of Jesus, mourning leads to the cross. The cross brings comfort. And the gospel of Jesus is the only source of true comfort. Because from salvation we have a gift. And that gift as a result of our salvation is called the Holy Spirit. And guess what the Holy Spirit's name is? The advocate or the comforter. You see, through Christ, we have the filling of the Comforter through our salvation. We have the Holy Spirit as a gift from Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken, those of you that are empty, and then you inherit that kingdom of heaven, which is Beatitude 1, and those of you that are mourning, that are hurting, well, good news for you, disciples, because through salvation, you have the Holy Spirit, and you will receive comfort. See, only Jesus can carry our sin, our regret, our pain, and our sorrow. He suffered on the cross for that sake. He, and he asks us to cast our burdens on him for he cares for us. See, this comfort is for those who are his in this life. Look at Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest in this life. He doesn't just say, hey, come to me, and you know what? If you can just suck it up for the next 30 to 40 or 50 years of your life, then you'll be comforted. No, he says, come to me today. If you'll come today, you will be comforted. If you come today, I will give you rest. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, talking to his disciples, my peace I give you, it says, I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. You see, the world offers phony fillings for our mourning and suffering. Jesus says, no, I don't give the way that the world gives. What I give works. What I give fills you. What I give truly, truly comforts you. Don't be afraid. So it's It's life in this life, it's comfort in this life, and it's comfort in the next. Revelation 21 says in the life to come, he says, He, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You see, there will be a day when we will never be crying and mourning again, but this isn't a gift for everybody. That's a gift for the disciples, for those that are followers of Jesus Christ, those that truly are born again, those that are true Christians. The Bible says, hey, you know, for you that are truly followers of mine, Jesus says, there's going to come a day when there's going to be no more mourning, no more crying. This is a gift to my kids, Jesus says. The result of the broken and comforted life leads to the next one. Because there is an emptying, poor in spirit, there is a filling the meek, uh, sorry, the morning, and now he says, as a result, there's a walking. We're empty, we're filled, and now we walk differently. Jesus says, God is our comforting, and then he shakes up the whole crowd with this one. Again, remember, he's talking to people who live in a culture filled with hatred, prejudice, racist, people who were violent, obsessed with with violence and weapons and and hated their government, and religious manipulation and control. This was a culture that was obsessed with people finding their own place of power. And then Jesus says this, and he shakes everything up. Remember, their life is filled with suffering and chaos, and this is what he says. Then Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, or the word earth, this is the same as the word land. Now, this is important to know because listen, he was talking to his disciples, and by the end of the Beatitudes, we find out that the crowd had gathered around because as he continues on the Sermon on the Mount, he starts to talk to the crowd as well. But what we need to understand is that the Jewish people were under complete persecution by a, a another government, the Roman government. They controlled the. Let me put it this way: it'd be as if Germany had won World War II. And I don't know if you ever see Man in the High Castle. Uh, it's a it's a Amazon Prime TV series with the scenario of what if Germany had won the war. It's a really interesting uh, um, scenario. And America is basically Nazi controlled for the majority of it, except for the West Coast, which is uh, proportioned over to Japan. So you have this this Nazi regime with very little control, full oppression, and this constant overthrowing and this this, this usurping of, of power to overthrow the government, oppression, and we want our land back, right? We want, we want America back, that's the idea. So this is the situation they're in. In Israel, the Jewish people hadn't had possession of their own land as their own for generations now. And currently it was under the control of a very difficult, tyrannical government, Rome. And so they want their land back. And here's what Jesus says. You want your land back? You want to inherit the blessing of your land again? (laughs) Be meek. Now you need to understand, they're thinking, what? You mean we're supposed to do nothing? You mean we're supposed to just be gentle? Jesus, you're asking us to be weak. You're asking us to do nothing and to sit back. This would have been absurd to the listeners. Jesus is saying, You want this? You want Israel back again? He says, You want to have some sense of control in your life? You want to have some sense of of kind of a peace about your future? Be meek. Now, this is the same challenge for us today. They considered the power of the sword, but they never considered the power of meekness. Well, what meekness is not is important to understand. First of all, meekness is not passive niceness. You know, a lot of times I think, man, just whatever, just whatever. I'm just going to go with the flow. Meekness is not someone who goes with the flow. That's not what it means. Just kind of give in, be passive, whatever, any, whatever the crowd says, whatever your wife wants to do, whatever your husband wants to do, whatever your family, just whatever the boss says, yeah, just give, just be nice and let everybody, that's not what meek means. But a lot of times we think meek just means being passive. It doesn't mean that at all. Another thing, meekness is not cowardice. A lot of people think, well, meekness means I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble. I want to fight. Go ahead, man. You know, no, no, go ahead. I don't want any trouble. I don't want to I don't want any conflict. I just I just want to make sure that we all can get along. Meekness is not this attitude of just staying out of problems. It's not about not getting involved. A lot of people think that meekness is, is someone who just doesn't get involved in anything and they're just they just want to stay out of trouble. That's not what meek means. A third thing, a lot of people say that meekness is not uh, meekness is not an attitude of inaction. You know, a lot of people think, well, I'm just not, it'll fix itself. And, and a lot of people think that meek is just this attitude of do nothing. You know, that you have this like, yeah, whatever. You know, you're just, just keeping it on the down profile. And see, a great example of active meekness would be Martin Luther King. He actively stood against injustice without violence. And his approach to, to the civil rights movement actually changed America forever, regardless of what you feel about uh, about him as a person. He changed the face of America forever through his active meekness. In fact, so much he was so anti-violent that a lot of his his own community attacked him and uh, negatively spoke of him because they didn't feel like he was aggressive enough. You have groups like the Black Panthers who were very militari- military military. Minded when it came to to the government or uh you know the nation of islam and malcolm x they were very very active in kind of a demonstration and a violent and protest martin luther king is like no 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 man just be one who is confident secure but be active be involved be there but a lot of people think that meekness is inactive but it's not meekness also will say well it's weak man the meek are weak people Man, they do nothing. They're just quiet. They're like, they're just, you know, you get this perception. a lot of men, they're like, they don't want to be meek because they think that somehow it's going to make them be perceived as a weak person. Let me tell you something. All the great heroes of the Bible... David, Joseph, Jeremiah, and the list goes on. They all had a character trait that was all common, and it was meekness, but yet they were considered the most powerful, some of the most dynamic. Moses, one of the most powerful, dynamic people in the Bible. Numbers twelve three says, Now the man Moses was very meek, humble, and lowly, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. During the life of Moses, there was no one more meek than Moses. Yet he was a powerful, strong, dynamic leader. Jesus is described by others and by himself as being meek. Matthew 11, says, Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We read that part. But he says, Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am meek. And you will find rest for your souls. This is an echo of the first beatitude, the first two. Poor in spirit and mourn, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 21, 5, say to the daughter of Zion, Jesus says, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, meek, and mounted on a doggy, a beast of burden. Jesus describes himself as fulfilled prophecy, as the one who is meek. Paul says, I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul is challenging to live a life that looks like Jesus in meekness and gentleness. Humbleness In Philippians 2 through 7, it says though Jesus was God, he took the form of a meek and humble and gentle servant. I want you to realize this. Though Jesus is called meek, he is not weak. He holds the power of the universe in his hands. He is and has the power of God. Jesus is God. He's commanding. He is dangerous, yet he is meek, but he is not weak. It makes me think in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the beaver is trying to tell the kids about Aslan, who's like a type of Jesus in the story. And they go, is he safe? And I love the beaver. He goes, is he safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. And I think, man, that's beautiful. It's just, that just totally describes Jesus. Yeah, he's not safe. Man, Jesus is dangerous. He's God. He has all the power of the world in his hands. But he's good. He's meek. He's gentle. Here's what it is: meekness is strength under control. That is the true definition of meekness. Whose control? Not yours. A lot of times we think, man, I just need to be meek. Get yourself together. Get under control. Now, the Bible does say that a fruit of the Spirit is self-control. You can't control anybody but yourself. But this idea of meekness is not about your control over your life. This is a different kind of control. It denotes an inward calm and an acceptance of God's will. A surrender of control to a greater control. When you see the word meek, blessed are the meek, I want you to think of the word submission. Because this is what he's saying. Its root word means equilibrium or balance. Think about this. It's someone who does not blow up easily, but is meek, gentle, and balanced because they know who is in control. The image of a large vessel or a powerful ship led by a captain in a storm, we are controlled by the captain who is Jesus. That's why in Galatians 5 and Colossians 3, it says that meekness is the fruit found in a true disciple of Jesus. It's often used in the ancients to describe a wild horse, strong and dangerous, but whose spirit is tamed by their owner. I mean, if you've ever been on a horse, anybody here liked a horseback ride. We kind of grew up with some horses, where where uh, you know we had horses when I was younger, but we always rode horses our whole life. My my sister and her brother, uh, my brother-in-law, her husband, are are uh, farriers. Um, they 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 own and they take care of and they do horseshoeing for a living, and uh, they love horses and. Uh, horses have been a big part of our life, but uh, they get these horses that are that are not tame. You know, they get these horses that are wild, or, or you, you might, they're beautiful, man. they're powerful and beautiful. These stallions, wild stallions, and, and you think, man, if we could just break them, and it's a process of, of breaking them and loving them at the same time. Because what happens in that breaking process is the horse, though he could kill and trample, anyone at any time, they begin to get involved into the relationship of the person who owns them and who is leading them. And they are broken out of the compassion and love relationship that their owner shows them. And all of a sudden, this horse that is still powerful and could still wreak an incredible amount of havoc becomes submissive and tender to its owners. That's what God does. The meek relinquish control of their lives. He tames us and he takes control. He doesn't take our strength away. He just asks us to give control of that strength to him. Meekness is the God-controlled life. Therefore, we treat others in humility as one who's in the master's control. The vulnerability of the weak is both beautiful and Painful. It goes against all that we are by our sinful nature. It requires supernatural help to surrender to God and to respond gently. Jesus was actually quoting a psalm, and this is what I want to end on. Is I want to quickly give you where Jesus came up with this meekness passage. Blessed are the meek, for you shall inherit the earth. Which is interesting, by the way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because you will inherit heaven. But blessed are the meek, for you will inherit. See, there's a whole package involved here when we submit ourselves to the life of Jesus Christ. We get a full picture of who we are. I'm going to explain what that means, inherit the earth here in a minute. But Jesus was actually quoting a psalm, Psalm 37, verse 11, that says, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. He's quoting a verse, but in that short little psalm, he gives us, Jesus gives us a definition of of what meekness is. Think about it. You're sitting here and Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the land. Now remember, they are fighting and demanding for power in their land where they've lost control. And Jesus says, hey, I want to quote you a verse. Remember Psalm 37? And all of a sudden, every Jewish young man and young woman would have gone, oh, wait a minute. Psalm 37. 11 verses that tell me what God expects from me. They would have known that. Let's see what they would have known. And let's read Psalm 37. First of all, he says, verse 1, he says, Do not fret because of those who are evil or envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. This is the definition of meekness. It's number one, the meek have an eternal perspective of life's trials. The evil, the angry, the wicked, the spiteful, the envious, they will not last forever. The meek understand the brevity of life and the temporariness of life and that things here are just passing. One of the things my mother used to always say, and it's whenever she was having a really bad day, she would always say, this too soon shall pass. Now, she died an early death. And uh, I just remember her saying that all the time. This too soon shall pass. Because she had a whole life of trial and abuse. And, and, and uh, God delivered her from, uh, from addiction. And she suffered with chronic pain. I just remember hearing her saying all the time, this too soon shall pass. She understood the brevity of life. And Jesus is saying, hey, you guys want to inherit the land? Be meek. But remember, to be meek is to understand that this life is temporary and that the troubles and the trials of those around you that oppress you and control you and afflict pain on you, that hurt you, it's all passing away. Second thing, he says this. He says, verse 3, in the same psalm, trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. He says, the meek, they learn to trust God. See, biblical meekness is rooted in this deep confidence that God is for you. You see, this is the beauty of being in a relationship of of poor in spirit with God and understanding the comforting filling of the Holy Spirit. You get to this place where you understand God is for me as a disciple, not against me. God is good and he loves me and he cares for me. And when my life is going crazy haywire, God is still good and in control. And I trust that. I trust that no matter what happens, and because of that, I can be meek, I can be calm, I can be someone who doesn't freak out, I can be balanced in my emotions, because I understand that God is for me, not against me. That is why we get to let go of control, because he's good. And then he goes on to say, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We isolate this verse that is actually connected to meekness. He says this is the echo of the very beatitude that we're looking at. It means the meek seek to please God above all others. How we usually see this verse is that, you know, if I can just, you know, do the right things and God's going to give me what I want. The verse is all about submitting. If I can delight myself in the Lord, if I could submit to God, if I can surrender control to God, he will give me the desires of my heart, which is that inheritance of blessing that he promises in this third beatitude. If I can learn to submit, if I will delight myself in the Lord, God will give me the desires of my heart. Guys, listen, when you learn to submit to God, your desires change in your heart. And God begins to put desires that reflect his heart and reflect his will. And all of a sudden, we begin to see God working in our life and we begin to see the things in our life that God promises begin to happen as we surrender and commit our life to the heart and to the will of God. The meek seek to honor God and seek his delight rather than their own rights and their own power. And this is the opposite of their perspective because we live our whole life demanding our rights, demanding our independence, getting what is ours. It's my turn now. Nobody's going to fight for me but me. This attitude, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Delight yourself in the Lord, the meek. Those are the ones that will inherit the land, that will have the blessings of God. Those of you that find the desires of your heart being filled are the ones who lose control of your life and give that control over to him. Verse 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord. That word commit means to roll. I love going to come back to that idea. It says, it says, roll your ways to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Here's the, the next thing is that the meek commit their ways to the Lord. You see, meekness is an active submission of God's will. And and this is the picture of this psalm. Imagine a big boulder, right? Your life has a boulder of burdens, right? I mean, work, family, kids, finances, uh, you know, dreams, goals. You got this boulder, and Jesus says, roll it on over here, man. Roll it on over. He says, commit, roll your ways over to the Lord. He says, roll your ways over to the Lord, and he will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn. See the meek commit their ways. It's an act of submission. Let go of the reins of control. And this goes, echoes back to those tamed horses. The meekness is strength under control, a submission. And then verse 7, he says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. A lot of times we're like, well, God, why is my life falling apart? And this guy who's not even living for Jesus has all kinds of money in his pocket. God, I'm so lonely, and I feel like I'm all by myself. How come this guy who's not living for you has a relationship, has someone, and is with somebody? God, I don't understand. I'm doing everything right. I'm being faithful in my giving, but I can't ever get out of this debt hole that I'm in. God, I don't understand. I commit my ways to you. My marriage isn't doing any better. I don't understand. Why are the wicked prospering? And he says this. It says, do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. Be still, he says, and wait patiently for him. You see, the meek learn to wait on God. A calm peace is what this is about, as we wait for God's timing. See, that's why in... Uh, Philippians 4, 7, Paul says that when we make our petitions and requests made known to God, he gives us the peace that surpasses understanding. He doesn't say that when we pray, God gives us everything we want. He doesn't say that when we pray, all our prayers are answered. He doesn't say if we make our petitions in our checklist, Jesus, here's my checklist, 1 to 10, have at it. He doesn't begin to make them happen. He says what he does give you instead is peace that surpasses understanding while you learn to wait on the timing of God in your life. The meek have a calm steadiness. Again, this goes back to that equilibrium definition, this balance, this steadiness about their lives in the face of obstacles because they know that God is good and at work. It's this like no sweat. When trials come, when you get that news, no sweat. No sweat. I'm not gonna get angry, no sweat. When a guy cuts me off, no sweat. When I get that letter in the mail, no sweat because God's in control. God is good. It's not a denial of the truth. It's a surrender of your life that brings that meekness, that calm in the storm. As a result, the meek are teachable, and they have wisdom. James 1:19 to 21 and, and 3, 13 through 17, write that down. That meek attitude brings a teachable heart and wisdom. As a result, this is what happens, Psalm 37, 8, it says, uh, refrain from anger and turn from wrath, do not fret. It means don't worry. It leads only to evil. He says, for those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who whose hope is in the Lord will inherit the land. Again, this is the echoing back of the of those that are meek will inherit the land. He says, but if you don't get angry and if you don't seek revenge, if you don't seek wrath, it because those only lead to, to evil. But if you can learn as a meek person to hope in the Lord, he says, you will inherit the land a little while, he says, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. I want you to write this down. The meek are slow to anger. This is again a fruit of that whole reliance and submission. The meek don't live by violence to solve problems. And this is a great character trait of a disciple of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 26, 52, one of the disciples stood up to defend Jesus and cut the ear off of a a soldier. And, And Jesus put the ear back on him and said, Peter, listen, man, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. He says, violence is not the answer. Rage is not the answer. Revenge is not the answer. Your wrath is not the answer. The meek understand that violence does not bring peace if we lived in an oppressive government, which we do not, we live in a democratic government with freedom. You may not like everything our leaders do, but that's why we have free elections, and it's a wonderful thing. It's not a perfect government, it's definitely not without its flaws, but we do not live in an oppressive government. But if we did, many would think fight first. They would stockpile guns maybe and, and be ready to fight and be ready to attack. And if I were to say, stand down, be meek, don't be angry, don't, don't let the, this self-righteous wrath overcome you, you might think, get out of my way. I dare you to try to take my guns. I dare you to do something. Get out of my way. How You're just being weak. You're being passive. You're being all these things that people think that meekness is, but it's not. This meekness went against their mindset. Jesus said, hey, you want want peace in your life? Step down. Be active, but don't be violent. Oftentimes, I think this so goes against not only their mindset, but against our American mindset. And I come from a military family, and I'm thankful for those that sacrificed their lives to defend our freedoms and rights And we should do that, and we should celebrate those that sacrifice those. But I want you to know something. According to Jesus, ultimate victory will never be found at the end of a barrel. We'll never have peace through war. We will never have peace through violence. The meek understand that God is the vindicator. That's the point of that passage right there. He says, don't be angry. Be one who's trusting God. You will inherit the land and know that I am the vindicator meekness is, I like John Piper who says, meekness is the power to absorb adversity and criticism without lashing back. Then this is where Jesus gets to that last verse in Psalm 37. He says, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And that is the echo of the beatitude number three. He was quoting Psalm 37 to them. And this is the last one. The meek will inherit blessings. This does not mean that we will own the earth. A lot of people think, well, that means that when you're a Christian, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses teach that when you die, if you are Jehovah's Witness, you will inherit the earth and live on earth, and only 144,000 people ever get to go to heaven, and that number's already filled, so no luck for you to ever go there, but you will inherit the earth, and they use that verse, but that verse does not really, uh, Mean that you will have the earth as your possession because all things belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, this is a state of blessing in this life and an inheritance of the blessings of the kingdom in the afterlife. See, this is the beauty of Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. I want to end with this and pray for you. We've read this already, but I want you to hear it in the context of mourning and meeking, of meekness. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Rest, that's mourning and the filling of comfort. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. That's surrender and the example of true meekness. And you will find rest for your souls, that's comfort and the inheritance of life. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's the inheritance of blessing in our life. This is the whole package. See, here's the great picture that God is asking us today. and I love this. God Almighty is inviting you to come, especially those of you that are hurting, and to give control to the one who's in control. And if you can learn to do that, you'll be comforted and you'll inherit hope and eternal life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for these little M&Ms today. God, I pray that you would, uh, God, challenge us to, to surrender control of our life to you. That's only how we can be meek. It's not about just getting ourselves under control, but, God, it's about relinquishing control. So, Father, I pray if there's anyone here, the Father, that has never given you control of their life, I pray that they would take the moment right now to do so. If you're here and... uh You know you need to relinquish that control over the Lord. Just talk to Jesus for a second. Say, Jesus, here's my life. Here's everything I have and I am. Forgive me of my sin. I give you control of my life. Tame this wild horse that I am. God, help me to use the gifts and the strength and the power that you've given me for your glory. The master of my life, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.